0: Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And returning to join us is our film critic, Cam Collins. Hi, everybody. Cam, thank you for, for jumping back in. We've been like deep in Emmys for a while, um, so it's good to be back and talking about movies and uh, to be able to bring you back into the fold. Uh, even though we're not talking about movies that are actually out now, we're mostly going to talk about trailers. So thanks for joining us. It's like yeah. how
1: actors talk about, you know, my first love is theater. Our first love is movies.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the fact that we're like devoting half a show to trailers, like really says something about how we're just like, just, give, just get us to September, please. And back to movies. We are going to talk about a movie at the uh, back half of the show. We're going to talk about Mama Mia. Here we go again. Uh, and then Richard's going to talk to Ole Parker, who's the director. First, we wanted to, as kind of promised last week, we wanted to catch up on this huge of trailers that's been dropping lately um like all for prestige fall movies like all the kind of thing that gets uh the film people we follow on twitter excited i'm sure um so we're just going to run down a bunch of those and we're going to start by hearing a little bit of the first one on the list which is mary queen of scots
2: i know your heart has more within it than the men who counsel you you would do well to watch your words i will not be scolded by my inferior
0: so this is the trailer that i think i saw the most explosion for on my twitter feed uh do you did you guys get the same thrill out of watching this that i did
1: I mean, gay Twitter definitely got a thrill out of Margot Robbie <laughs> with her wig off. <laughs> I was gonna say, <laughs> and her fluffy red hair already a meme. It's <laughs> already a meme. Um, the Oscars are certainly no stranger to like an actress like stripping down and, and you know looking ugly, quote unquote. Um, and it's interesting that this is Robbie's follow-up to I Tanya, like it, another kind of like daring, like you know, against-type kind of role. Um, I th- it looks interesting. I thought it might be kind of just like a, a snoozy biopic, but, um, you know, it's directed by this theater director, Josie Rourke. This is her first um, movie, but she's been big, I think, at the National Theater and various other places in the UK. So, like, maybe there's some, some actually, some personality to this in a way that it didn't seem to be on paper.
2: Yeah, and I don't know. I like Margot. I like Saoirse. I think pitting them against each other is sort of fun
0: yeah do we know how uh, like when this came into development because it is cool that they were best actress nominees together and now we're in like i know by the time the oscars this movie had already happened but um it's in kind of some impressive foresight to see them as as e- equals in that way
1: yeah i feel like it was probably just like good nice timing kind of accidentally so i yeah. feel like it was in the works before you know i Tonya exploded or whatever um or ladybird even um But yeah, no, it it feels like fortuitous timing. This seems like ready-made to be a Toronto movie. Um, But who knows? Like, maybe it'll be at Venice. Like, I mean, it's hard to tell what level of prestige we're talking about. You know, I sort of associate it unfairly with like the Mary Shelley movie that was kind of like at Toronto last year with no Fan. It just kind of came and went and everyone forgot about. I think this is on a higher level than that.
0: I mean, that does seem like the kind of delay that's strategic. Now that they are both best actress nominees, like there is a level of uh, of hype for it that I think it earned after right. by waiting after those Oscars.
2: And you don't want to crowd the field with too many bad wigs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well,
2: which I'm- is one thing I got from watching these trailers one after another. By the way, it's going to be a bad wig. Season. Search's wig
0: rule. I listen. Having just seen Mamma Mia, too, like there are some real rough w- wigs in that one.
2: I think that's the thing. I think everyone wants, like, that that craft Oscar. Hair and makeup. <laughs> to make me look yeah. patchy. Make me look like I have no hair.
1: The production on it was, like, last summer. So... Okay. So, yes, it was, it's on its proper schedule.
0: It's, it's what they made before their six-month press tour for their That's exactly uh, right. Oscar movies. Okay, well, it, it seems like a natural seg into uh, another film that released a trailer recently. Uh, also about royals and queens and various courts. Uh, let's listen to a little bit of The Favourite.
2: Throw!
0: Throw!
1: <gasps> you look like a badger.
0: <laughs> I've sent for some lobsters. I thought we could race them and then eat them. So
1: this one's interesting because I actually do know a little bit vaguely about this movie's timeline, where you think, okay, so this is Yorgos Lanthimos, this Greek director who's had a lot of kind of independent festival success with The Lobster or The Killing of a Sacred Deer before that Alps or Dogtooth, is really big breakout film um, in his native Greek. Um, so you'd think, okay, so now he's in this movie with big, you know, uh, English-language-speaking stars. He didn't write the script. It's getting this big awards kind of presentation. Clearly, this is the work he got after The Lobster, after Killing a Sacred Deer. And actually, no, he was set up to do this before even The lobster um but it kept getting delayed and so then the lobster kind of went and then it was delayed again and he said well i have this other weird little screenplay the killing of sacred deer like let me do that this is what someone who works um for the irish production company that that produces a lot of his films told me um so it's interesting that this this kind of seemingly more traditional project has actually been kind of gestating longer than his most recent kind of weird stuff
0: Although when you see this trailer, like, don't you just get the feeling like, oh, my God, Yorgos Lanthimos made like a court drama. Like, it just feels so weird. I mean, the trailer especially, like, really plays off of that. And it's exciting in that way because you feel like you've seen stories about this period of time a million times. But this seems really different.
2: I mean, watching it in a series of period drama trailers, it really stands out as angular, cynical, dark Um, Someone gets pushed into mud. Someone gets spanked, maybe. Uh, Rachel Weiss gets blood splattered on her face. Right. And she also shoots someone. (laughs) (laughs) Or or something. Right.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I think, Cam, also you're right. It looks funny. Yeah. Which like is so... I mean, unless you're getting a sort of like... Kenneth Branagh, e or a, a a Jane Austen kind of thing. It's rare to see period pieces that like are playful, but and this is but this is also dark too. So yeah. I'm really curious. I'm actually kind of
2: surprised that Helena Bonham Carter isn't in this. Right. Um, this. Well, she, isn't this- she, she wrote and DP'd it. So. Oh,
0: yeah. <laughs> her uh, co-star on The Crown, season three, is in it though. You got it was cool seeing Olivia Coleman in this, and then seeing the promo photo for her in The Crown come out a few days later. It's like, good lord, different types of royalty.
1: Olivia Colman was such a fun, you know, sort of supporting supporting part in *The Lobster*. Sort of a standout as the the, the lady who ran this insidious hotel for single people. Um, So it's cool to see her get a big role. My question about the movie, I was was reading the plot synopsis, is who is the actual lead of the movie? Mm -hmm. Maybe there isn't one, but I think even though the trailer doesn't suggest it, I think it's Emma Stone. Because it's about her. She plays a maid who has fallen from aristocracy and is trying to claw her way back and sees an opportunity when she arrives at Queen Anne's court. And Rachel Weisz's character is kind of running the country while Queen Anne is going crazy. And so Emma Stone's character sees an opening there and kind of, like, gets in with the queen. I think that's what the conflict
2: is all about. I think it's interesting that Emma Stone is even in a, in a Yorgos Lothamos movie. Yeah. I, think it, yeah, yeah, I think it's an interesting turn for her. I, and I kind of wanted to see her be, I, I don't know, I'm interested in in her doing something conniving. <laughs> Maybe mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, I, I just, I think, that, I think, like, there are parts of her personality, her persona, that just haven't really gotten a big movie treatment yet. And I kind of want to see her do something like this. I'm excited. Yeah, especially because her last two movies, um,
1: Battle of the Sexes and uh, La La Land, which she obviously won an Oscar for, like, she was very much the sort of centered, moral, you know, good sort of, you know, sort of hero. Easy A A as well. Easy A, yeah. yeah. (laughs) In a way. I love that movie. I love that movie (laughs) That's a great movie. Her (laughs) other
0: Oscar play. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And even even in Birdman, she's sort of this moral center where she has this big monologue where she's kind of like telling him the truth in a mean way. Right. But yeah, so I think you're right that like to see her devious and not necessarily good um, could be fun. Yeah. The question is, I mean, Katie, does this movie seem oscar to you or more like highbrow, fun, fall fair?
0: I mean, I think it has to be. It's coming out from Fox Searchlight. It's coming out in November, right before, um, uh, Thanksgiving. It's in like all of the slots. Fox Searchlight, I think, has won three of the last five Best Picture Oscars, which is, you know, sort of a meaningless stat, but I think definitely shows that they've got the strength to put it over. I mean, it could be like The Lobster, where it's something that we talk about for a while and then winds up getting kind of a minimal presence. But it, like, I think they're going to push it. And whether or not it actually is too weird for the Academy is something we won't know until we see it.
2: It's hard to say also with this quote-unquote new Academy. Um, I mean, I think I think the Academy seems ready for Lanthimos. I think that this project with this new voting body, new-ish voting body, um, with Emma Stone and Rachel you know, I just, it's a period drama. You can explain this to someone probably much more easily than you could the lobster. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> or Killing of a Sacred Deer. I think you lose people at the title of that one, um, let alone the content. <laughs> But this seems like, you know, I think I think there are enough signifiers of Oscarness with his personality that I think this should be I mean it'd be interesting if this did well. It'd be interesting to see if the Oscars sort of adapted themselves to something adventurous like this
0: i'm imagining a lot of f cinema scores just people who think they're going to see uh, right. like oh mother my of... god yeah the mother right. of this where's <laughs> ryan
2: gosling
1: i mean it's interesting looking at this crop of trailers that's been released so far i mean probably it has nothing to do with anything beyond just like when things were ready but you have the next one we're going to talk about is colette but like and, and then there's another one on the basis of sex these are all you know, Lanthimos was maybe the little left of the center, but like these are all pretty traditional, period fair with like, you know, lauded actresses in it. You wonder, in a way, if those trailers are coming out now to sort of set the groundwork for fear that more interesting, difficult stuff coming out later is going to get the bulk of the conversation. Right. So, like, all right, we got it. We got to get these movies in the mix now.
0: Is there anything in particular you're thinking of that's hiding?
1: Um. Well, I mean, I heard sadly that. Barry Jenkins' movie is a little delayed so I'm not sure oh, if no. that's actually no. gonna I, but I mean that might just be it's not gonna be a Telluride it could you know um, but you know something like that I'm still holding out hope that Widows will be oscar even though I think it's a commercial play but then there's like other weird stuff and this is like not unconventional exactly but I'm really curious to see what this weird Adam McKay Dick Cheney movie called Backseat is yeah. like is that gonna be any good but like anyway I just feel like this it's been a while since like traditional oscar period fair has been um, the main attraction at the Oscars. So maybe they're trying to like... The studios are
2: trying to like bring that back. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, do- it does increasingly seem like, for Best Picture anyway, it, it, it there can only be one of this kind of right. movie. Like last year it was Darkest Hour, I guess. It just it seems like
0: hmm.
2: increasingly this is not the movie of the moment for the Oscars. Yeah. And, and I think that's interesting. But I also think like The Favourite seems too weird to be the Darkest Hour or the King's Speech of this year. Fully. Um, Mary Queen of Scots, I don't know. I mean, Elizabeth did well at the Oscars recall, or a call, or was at least nominated for stuff. Oh, yeah. Like, this does feel like a sort of A younger sibling of that movie.
1: Well, it's funny you mentioned Darkest Hour because in the Mary Queen of Scots trailer, one of the title cards says, "From Working Title, the producers of Darkest Hour." (laughs) As if people like (laughs) civilian moviegoers are like, "Oh, Working Title, what we (laughs) got?" That's
0: like, it's like from the studio that brought you Deadpool and comes (laughs) Hidden Figures. Yeah, I'm trying to also think of the last time there was a period piece focused on women that did really well with the Oscars, like on on this level Hmm. of period piece. Like, like Brooklyn is not really that long ago. It just feels like it's been a while since like this kind of like women in big gowns uh, has been a big contender. So I think your theory might be right Richard that they have to like get you pumped really in advance so it doesn't get overlooked.
1: And they're both well cut trailers you know for what they are so I'm yeah, I'm I'm intrigued by both. Much more by the favorite obviously but
2: like. And you have me wondering though what was the last period drama focused on women that really did well at the Oscars?
0: How far back are we trying to look? I would
2: love to say Marie Antoinette but the Oscars missed about the there. I mean,
0: the artist, if you want to count that. <laughs> um that I don't even like True Grit? How's that?
2: True grit, I, sure.
1: One sure. woman and <laughs> a lot of like, men. <laughs> m- yeah, my yeah, my mind's going back to like Little Women ninety <laughs> <but>, four. <laughs> like I, I know there were some after that atonement, right. you know. Yeah, sure.
0: Yeah. I probably had to be looking at like the best actress field where uh, this happens, and like we should say that uh, pretty much everything we're going to talk about for the next couple trailers is all a bunch of best best actors plays. Which I mean, Kate Blanchett got
1: an Oscar nomination for the Elizabeth sequel, which is a very bad movie. <laughs> which is a very bad <laughs> movie, but good yeah. for her for doing. Yeah.
0: Getting- hey. Kate Blanchett does does what she wants. Um, okay, so let's let's talk about Colette then, another uh, best actress play that's a period film, and uh, let's hear a little bit of that one.
3: Finally, we have a success. And then you imply that I'm not the true author of it. People love to talk. I understand the mentality here. You don't.
2: I understand it well enough to write a book that's a toast of to Paris.
0: So Richard, you saw Colette at Sundance, uh, which I, I did. think is a weird place to see a period film like this. Um, but this trailer makes it look good and you said it's good.
1: Yeah, it was one of the weirder things at Sundance I saw because it's so not weird. Like it, it's, it. I don't know what it was doing at that festival, frankly. Um but maybe the thinking was it would have gotten swallowed up in Toronto with other things. Um, maybe they wanted just like kind of a longer like lead time in terms of buzz. Um, but f- you know, for whatever reason it worked, it's, it's a really fun movie in that it is a pretty straightforward biopic it's of the author Colette and her husband, uh, Willie played by Dominic West. Um, basically, you know, took credit for her work. It's big eyes basically set in France. And, um, uh, you know, but it's done effectively in that Kieran Knightley is great in it and it goes into um, Colette's sexuality in this very interesting, both serious and playful way. Kieran Knightley sells it like. She's, you know, sort of effervescent in the way that she was when we when, you know, Pride and Prejudice, when she, she first kind of, you know, got um, um, people's attention. So I don't know. I, I think it's it's a small movie, but I'm, I'm hoping that it's in the conversation. And look, Wash Westmoreland, who directed it, directed Julianne Moore to an Oscar for Still Alice, you know, but, oh. but five, four years ago.
2: So he has history with this.
0: That's interesting. I did not realize that connection.
2: I don't remember much about. Um, I guess they left like hints of her sexuality or that part of it out of the trailer because that that seems like something that I did not pick up on. There's yeah. a
0: little bit in <laughs> yeah. there where she's like, "I'm more interested in the wife," uh, and then oh, she like sure. looks at a woman. It's like like the yeah, Bohemian Rhapsody trailer, which I wasn't on our list to talk about, but maybe we should. Uh, where there's like one we moment should. where he looks at a guy, and like that's that's your gay moment.
1: Well, we're talking about best actors. We'll get to best actor stuff, including that. But yeah, I think the the movie. The trailer is tame in that regard, because the movie really dives into it. I mean, it's hmm. not like explicit sex or anything, but like, it's just, it's very sex positive and very like queer positive. And um, Denise Goff, who recently, you know, got rave reviews for being Harper in the Angels of America on Broadway, she plays her, you know, eventual lover. And and, and so that's a great performance and a really interesting dynamic. So the movie, while very traditional boilerplate on paper, is in execution um
2: something a little more, and I think hopefully people will be pleasantly surprised I'll, can I just historical footnote i I got a sense of this from the trailer or like a hint of this from the trailer, but I had to look it up that her husband goes by the name Willie. what a goofball <laughs> what is th- what is this? and he literally would just like
1: sign all the shit like Willie like yeah. <laughs> Yeah,
2: I need a separate movie about his decisions um, it's
1: also a wonderful Dominic West performance I, I bet I didn't he's recognize him at first yeah. frankly he's really good he's I mean, a complete sleazeball but like you get her he's good to at that him. yeah mm-hmm. so I don't know I think people should not count that one out
0: uh, alright let's do one last best actress contender and talk about on the basis of sex
2: you will lose and when you do you will set the woman's moving back 10 years you don't
0: get to tell me when to quit I know this case disrupted our lives. And who's it for, if not for me? You cannot leave- so this movie is coming out months after, or really, as the Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary is kind of tearing up the uh, indie box office. It's been like this huge documentary hit of the summer, um, which I do think, I don't know if either of you guys have seen that documentary, but I do think it's it kind of hurts this movie because that documentary right. is so kind of uh, detailed and thorough. And it's talking to Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself. And then you kind of see these movie actor versions of it. And I, I don't know. It made me... Concerned that uh, we're going to have like actors I love and Felicity Jones and Army Hammer kind of doing a you know, watered down version of this real story that we've seen.
2: I had the same exact thought that just I mean the 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 documentary is only a few months ago right it, and frankly people are still going to see it and there's something about the you know non larger than life like specific story there and also just the specific insights into her as a legal mind that definitely I'm not getting from the trailer but it, of this. New movie, but it's a trailer, so who knows? But um, I think, yeah, I think that the documentary sets this movie up to feel um, it just seemed vague. Looking at it, and I also, yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to like watch the documentary and then come away thinking Army Hammer should play her husband.
0: <laughs> Although I will say, in the <laughs> I'm documentary, a fan of Army
2: Hammer. It's not about him.
0: The documentary makes her husband such a great character that it did yes. it, like it does seem like it, if it's done well, like it could be better than like what we think of as the traditional supporting wife role. Like he could do something with it because that guy is cool, but it's unclear how much yeah. of that's going to happen.
2: And she is so. I mean, she really in the documentary and generally just doubles down on how important their marriage was to how she feels and thinks about the law and also just to her life. So I'm I'm interested in that. I, I I don't know though about this. Tra- <laughs> I, I don't know. I really would love for this movie to be amazing, and I would also love to love Felicity Jones and something. Um, and I think that actually from the trailer, I, I'm I'm excited. So I have
1: not seen the documentary. I've obviously heard. Ginsburg talk now that she's in you know her 80s um how for the if for those of you who've heard the younger Ginsburg, like does felicity jones get there i mean is that is her accent like at all on point like i because it sounds odd to me but I don't know. She's got kind of an odd voice, so right.
0: it, it felt okay to me. I'm not great with accents, but she did kind of get it, like the Brooklyn accent that she had in her younger years. And she looks more like her than you might expect um, after seeing the documentary, like in younger photos. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is—it's a decent resemblance.
2: That yeah, that is really striking. That um, it, it does—it feels—it feels right. It feels like right casting, and maybe that's also why Army Hammer stuck out a little bit because it, it didn't. I, frankly, I just think it needed someone like less movie star looking.
0: Was <laughs> is the Eternal Army Hammer problem, right? He's just too this handsome th- for everything.
2: <laughs> to have such problems, um... you know, and you kind of want to like.
1: There's a part of me that wants to say, "Oh, like, what a shame that Mimi Leader, who had, you know, had a scuttled film career in the '90s, uh, uh, and then was one of the few women directing blockbuster movies, uh, and then went to TV and has done beautiful work on The Leftovers and various other shows." Um, that her big triumphant return to cinema is this kind of paint by numbers biopic. Maybe it won't be. Again, like you said, Cam, it's just a trailer. But also, paint by numbers biopics still kind of do well and at the you know in the box office and the Oscars. Like people still like them. I have never really liked the genre because they always just seem pretty sta- you know stayed and, and boring. But like I don't know, maybe maybe there's something more you know to this, or or maybe it's just like a very good version of the paint by numbers biopic. Um, in either case. Like again, Felicity's someone to keep her eye on. Um, friend of the podcast, Joe Reed said something to be funny months ago. Kind of mean, but he was like, "Well, Felicity Jones will get nominated for the Ginsburg movie and then never again, right?" <laughs>
0: <laughs> that I disagree it was so with.
1: mean. Yeah. But I kind of was like, I no, but no. The, the, it was in response to I was, we were talking about Marsha Mason in the '70s, who you know got three Oscar nominations within the the, the course of I don't know a few years, and now you know people barely know who she is I mean who don't really pay attention to things she was like on the middle for a f- you know se- several episodes and I was like so who now will be mm. Marsha Mason in 40 years right. and she came up that's why he said sure. it he was, it wasn't unprovoked <laughs>
0: No, that's just like cruelty. that's definitely a, a game that's always worth playing is because there's so many things like that. But yeah, like Glenda Jackson won two Best Actress Oscars in the 70s. And then she had a career in politics. And there are so many people who you would ask and would never have heard of her. Um, and it's just interesting how like Oscars go through these periods of like someone being right in the middle of it. And then the you know career doesn't work out from there. So maybe that's a, a speculation for another day.
1: My answer to that question was Margaret
0: Robey. Oh, Mary Queen of Scots but is here to prove you wrong. At the right. time,
1: I was really mad about I Tonya, so like <laughs> her taking that wig off in the in the Scots trailer. I'm, I'm, I'm back everything. on Team Robbie.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I mean, right? I, I really hope Mary Queen of Scots is 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 more camp than it seems in the trailer. How could you have her look this way and it not be? I just feel like if I'm watching it without sound, I'm thinking this is Alice in Wonderland, and Saoirse is Alice. <laughs> oh my
0: God! Yeah, the, the hair is it's real, <laughs> totally. like uh, Queen of Hearts.
1: Yes, totally. Yeah, Margot Robbie plays a dejected restoration or a clown. <laughs> <laughs> like,
2: is just... she playing it in the sequel? What is going on? <laughs>
1: oh yeah, they're right. They're... Yeah, exactly. Sorry, Bill Skarsgård,
0: right. <laughs> you've been replaced. It. Uh, All right, let's take ourselves out of Best Actress and I guess move right on into uh, Best Actor because we've got uh, two trailers from uh, what someone on Twitter called Search's Boys um, with the first one, uh, the most recent one that I think has come out since we record this is uh, for Boy Erased starring Lucas Hedges. Jared,
3: tell me the truth, that's all. I think about men. I don't know why. And I'm so Sorry.
0: Uh, Richard, I think when we did our predicting the Oscars a year in advance episode, you picked Boy Erased, right, to win Best Picture. Yeah,
1: I, I don't know. I mean, I I mean, obviously it was a
0: year in advance prediction. I'm not holding you to it. Uh,
1: What I knew (laughs) is that the book was well received. Um, I, I've really liked Joel Edgerton's work as a director in the past um, with the movie The Gift, uh, which is a thriller. So this is not a thriller by any means. Nicole Kidman had just, you know, was recently nominated for an Oscar for a sort of similar role, uh, you know, in Lion um yeah so it just seemed like it had a good pedigree to it uh the trailer to me makes the movie look a little more familiar i guess than i had hoped like the tone felt just north in quality of a, like a and this is no knock on lifetime movies but like you know it's a mm. sort of tv movie about right. coming out and gay reparative therapy which is the you know the movie is based on this memoir about this kid whose minister father sent him to one of these hideous places that tries to pray the gay away uh, and then some um but the trailer is good it is a good trailer like lucas hedges is a wonderful actor the music is beautiful there's a song by troy Savan who's a big you know, out gay pop star who's also in the movie. So, Gay Twitter was certainly
0: yeah. <laughs> gay no, Twitter had exciting? a lot of feelings about trailers in the last few weeks. It's our season. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: We're here, here till like March, so <laughs> yeah. get ready. Yeah.
0: I also liked uh, Russell Crowe in the trailer. Like, I, it, it's jarring yeah. to me still that it's him and Nicole Kidman and Joel Edgerton, all very famous Australians in this movie set in Missouri or whatever. Um, right. But <laughs> I, d- I liked kind of the father son dynamic between him and Lucas Hedges that that emerged in that trailer.
2: I did as well. I'm also just. I'm. I'm so fascinated. I would love to see if, if Lucas Hedges has said anything about this, but he is our he is our religious guilt king right oh, now. Oh um, God, yeah. And <laughs> all at least his three kind of breakout roles, um, yeah. In this, in, in Ladybird. in
0: Manchester,
2: and Manchester. Not um, in.
0: Well, I guess in Three Billboards there's that whole scene with the with the priest, uh, Richard on the slap. Does he have a uh, strong uh, religious feelings?
1: The Slap, the television show?
0: <laughs> I thought <watch> The Slap. <laughs> I just remember oh, when Lucas Hedges no. started breaking out, I was like, he was on The Slap.
1: <laughs> I probably was Forgot looking at the MTV. I The Slap. Um, I, I saw the first episode of The Slap. It is very bad. Um,
0: <laughs> Everyone <laughs> involved has moved on to better things.
1: Something to note is that he has another movie coming out, Lucas Hedges does, uh, this fall. Um, in this movie Ben is Back, which is directed by his dad, Peter Hedges, who directed Dan in Real Life, with Julia Roberts, Courtney B. Vance, and others. So this could be a big season for Lucas Hedges. And you wonder if, if Boy Race is really good, and then Ben is Back is like good enough, right. if that's enough of a bolster to his sort of profile this year, that it puts him in a sort of shortlist yeah. for nominees. Because from what we see in
2: this trailer, like the performance seems strong. Yeah. yeah, and I mean he was already nominated for Manchester, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So he's already on the. The, the, the trick with him
0: is that he would be in Best Actor presumably for Boy Erased, and as we talked right. about a lot with Timothy Chalamet last year, like to be this young and get a Best Actor nomination is tough.
1: Yeah, New Academy.
0: Yeah, uh, I wanted <laughs> I to point out I hadn't looked at Ben Ben's back. Uh, it is the third movie to star Lucas Hedges with Catherine Newton, who played his sister oh, in Three yeah, Billboards, who gets killed (spoiler), uh, and also has a small role in Lady Bird. So there you go. That that universe is expanding. Uh, yeah. (laughs) I know. That's right. She's great great. great in blockers, if you haven't. I I, I finally (laughs) saw Joanne's beloved blockers, so. Yeah. We have to talk about that weekly on this show. It's uh, in the contract. Um, Okay, let's get to the other boy movie starring another one of Source's boys, the previously mentioned Timothy Chalamet. Uh, Let's hear a little bit of Beautiful Boy.
2: You're just embarrassed because I was like, you know, I was like this amazing thing, like your special creation or something,
0: and you don't like who I am now. Yeah? Who are you, Nick? This is me, Dad, here. This is who I am. This is not you.
1: So I'll say two things about this trailer. One is the scene at the diner or whatever it is where Chalamet is basically saying like, "You want me to be this person, but this is who I am." That's a good line, well delivered by him. The other thing, which is you know a negative, is that like I don't know about you guys. I've probably talked about this on this podcast a billion times. I just still have a really hard time with uh, Steve Carell in serious stuff mm. because I just hear Michael Scott playing serious. I had it even in Foxcatcher. I definitely had it in Freeheld, which I don't know, Kim, if you've seen that movie, but like no. it is <laughs> his performance is like He plays I, the lawyer. It's like right? yeah. Free Held is a it's, nightmare it's for awful. so many reasons. Um you know, so I'm I'm very skeptical. I I think he's probably a really great guy. He's he's a very funny actor, but I'm I remain skeptical about how seriously I can take him in drama. So like this Gives me pause. He also has the Women of Marwen coming out this, uh, or whatever they decided to call that movie, Marwen. The Robert Zemeckis movie coming out this fall, and that looks
0: that trailer a horror show. So I don't know. Uh,
2: This one I feel definitely less sturdy about than Boy Erased. It's it's hard. Well, I mean, with Steve Carell, it's hard for me because I think with Foxcatcher, what I appreciated was that because I agree with you, and at least with that character, he had those mommy issues and other weird things going on, where it lented an undertone of of weirdness that I thought was fine for that movie because the character is a creep um, and then otherwise yeah I don't I don't I don't know that it works out I want the best for him I just wish that the Academy were better at honoring comedy so that great comic actors <laughs> wouldn't have to throw themselves into roles that just aren't aren't quite right um, not that I not that this is an awards ploy but
0: I think the thing that Beautiful Boy has going for it is he seems to be really restrained. Like, if anyone has the showy role in this, it's probably Chalamet, sure. who I think we've seen cry enough that he's really good at it. Um, and, and, like, in, in those scenes where, you know, Karell is just kind of trying to be the sturdy dad, like, I think he has a lot of that in him. Um, like, I think even, like, the 40-year-old virgin where he's just kind of this, like, quiet character and what we remember is the bigger moments. Yeah. So it, it gives me some hope that maybe after things like Marwen or even Foxcatcher, which is a movie I really like, that he can, like really scale things back and maybe take some of that Michael Scott out of your brain.
1: Yeah. And he, you know, uh, speaking of Dan in real life, he's good in that. That's more of a kind of mix of comedy and drama. Um, And actually, you know, I don't even remember the name of it. But that Richard Linklater movie that came oh, out. Oh, Last Flag I so, was just thinking yeah, about that. Actually he was good, pretty in, that. good yeah. in that. Yeah, he's actually good in that. was really sad in that. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, So you know, he he can be good. I shouldn't write it off. Um. I'm curious about also the director is this guy, Felix van Groeningen, Groeningen who uh, had a movie that was at Sundance a couple of years called Belgica before that made the Broken Circle breakdown. So movies that have gotten some decent reviews, nothing terribly high profile, but like, this could be i mean in the book that the movie is based on was quite well received and, and sold a lot of copies so um this is by no means anything that we should count out i'm assuming again it will be at one of the fall festivals um where we can lay eyes on it but um i mean it's interesting that just a year later both chalamet and lucas hedges are like you know in the season again together. I mean, not right. that Lucas Hedges was going to get nominated for um, Ladybird, but, like, you know, it's just fun that, like, they get to do
2: this again this year. No, totally. I mean, it's, it's fun to just feel like we're watching a generation of, of a really amazing younger actors come up together. I will say something about Chalamet and a movie called the Beautiful Boys is a little on the nose for me.
0: <laughs> it's a lot.
2: Um, I, I was surprised when I watched the trailer finally to see um, that it was a, a drug movie. Yeah, yeah.
0: And not just right. like how beautiful is. This right.
2: boy? <laughs> to be honest, uh, because Hollywood <laughs> would pull something like that with, with a Chalamet. <laughs> right? Well,
1: so famously beautiful boy was originally called a uh, beautiful boys club. And Kevin Spacey was originally the Stephen, <laughs> Steve Carell part, but they digitally, they Christopher Plummered him
2: <laughs> just last month, just in time for this trailer. <sighs> oh man. I, you know, I, yeah, I, I don't know if, no, I'm, I'm excited for anything that Timothy Chalamet does. Um, I don't know that I'm that interested in him doing something dark like this. Mm -hmm. Um, Or rather, I don't think I'm interested in drugs as a dark thing that a young actor does anymore. It feels sort of, Archaic to me,
1: <laughs> but yeah, it was such a thing mm. that you that like every young actor and and actress had to prove themselves, right?
2: Either because
0: like this feels too Basketball Diaries, for yeah, you. yeah, a little bit, a little. Bit, yeah. a
2: little. For, and for him particularly, like a, a thin guy who could very easily play a heroin addict in a movie. I, I'm sure someone is like, wow, well, you know, he's already pretty skinny. And, you know, he looks like he's from New York, and you know, I think it's gonna work out. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm excited. I'm excited for anything that he does, um, except maybe Dune. <laughs> actually
0: oh jesus i don't yeah. know i oh, mean I
2: forgot about that I, I yeah we'll see but 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 i, I, don't, I don't know I, I think that i'm more excited about boy erased yeah if, if we're pitting these female artists against each other I would say uh so. these female pop artists or whatever people say um yeah I, i'm i'm more excited about boy erased although another boy can i just say a last boy erased no another bad wig movie nicole Kidman.
0: Yeah. She's had a lot of those. She
2: think She knows think what she her hair, hair looks it. like anymore. I don't know what her <laughs> hair looks like <laughs> anymore.
0: Um, I thought about this as, as we'll talk about Mama Mia too in A second, I wondered if what shares real hair is if she even oh, has any. Uh, it might be like Margot Robbie just like an orange, like clump. <laughs> I, I think that's everyone's
1: hair, way, hair at this yeah,
3: point yeah,
0: secretly <sighs> <sighs> um, All right, let's close. Let's close out trailer talk with um, the one I mentioned offhand earlier. Um, speaking of gay Twitter, let's talk about Bo- Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs>
2: You need to slow down, Fred. I just need a bit of time. But if I don't have time?
0: I actually don't know what gay Twitter said about Bohemian Rhapsody or if anyone said anything because the amount of gayness in this trailer is almost non-existent. Um, can you guys give me a dispatch?
1: There's like one, like he like glances at a man. After some someone says something about his private life, there's like a hand on a hand, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. The, but there had been f- some reports, I think, that they were excising it completely from his story for that this movie. That would be movie.
0: insane. That but would
1: be so bad. These, those reports were either wrong or they did their job, which was that like the, the filmmakers were like, Ugh, "Like we, okay, we got to do this." I mean, they did excise one gay aspect from this movie,
0: uh, the which director? was
1: the firing of Brenton. <laughs> <Star. laughs>
0: Although he's still credited as the director, I think.
1: Is
2: he really? Oh, is he?
0: I think like like all those DGA rules mean that, uh, oh right. it's still his movie, but yeah, he uh, he got fired with not a ton left to go, but some amount of the movie left to go. Yeah, he's the only director credit on IMDB.:
2: Do we know how much was like reshot? Um, I, I just I love the history of movies that have one person's name on them, but were really literally directed by somebody else because that person got fired. Um, yeah, we I may, we may know, never but...
0: know. Um, I, I, I'm sure a lot of this is on deadline because that firing happened, I guess, in the spring sometime. Um, but yeah, it's uh, definitely an interesting. Like, here is uh, kind of the relic of someone's career who, that seems to be over for uh, all intents and purposes. So yeah, yeah. I mean, what do we think about Rami Malek? Um, I think it's he. I think
1: it's good casting. It I, is, you know. Um, I, and I think it's mostly him singing to a track. I don't think he's actually i think it's freddie mercury's voice that we're going to be hearing i think that's for the best um i think that's definitely for the best (laughs) um so my my curiosity about rami malik in the role and the role in general is like how much of an appetite there is for a queen biopic or a freddie mercury biopic and also in tandem with that how much there's an appetite for a rami malik star vehicle you know
2: yeah people like mr robot but how many people i don't know you know and the thing is that the the Accurately queer version of this is something that I could actually see a demographic that I'm a part of really going out to see. Um, I will say what I, what encourages me though about the conversation about this movie so far is that I'm actually glad. And this came up when uh, you know the movie uh, Stonewall came out. Like I'm I'm glad that people are being vocal about um, objections to how we're representing queer history in movies now because it's great that we're doing this in movies right now. Um, but it's, it's like a, you know, there's, there's a lot of ground that has not been tread or it's been poorly tread. And, and I'm glad that as a community, like queer people have been pretty vocal about saying Mm -hmm. this is a queer person and you're unqueering them, or this was a racially diverse thing that happened in queer history and you made it very white or like whatever it is. I'm, I'm glad that I'm glad that we're all like, frankly, kind of seem to be on the same page about there's a right way to do things like this. Um, yeah, I yeah. would love for the movie to be great. I would love for, you know, I, I mean, I think Freddie Mercury deserves a splashy, grimy, huger than life movie. Um, and I would love for this to be great.
1: Does it um, make either of you nervous, Katie or Cam, that, it, that the movie was written by Anthony McCartan, who wrote Darkest Hour and The Theory of Everything? So there's yes, a very traditional <laughs> biopic kind of thing at work there.
0: Yeah, I'm a fan of Darkest Hour, but I wouldn't say the screenplay is like its greatest strength. So that is, uh, yeah, not it's not probably the biopic that Cam was talking about, where it's you know specific yeah. and grimy and kind of like feels lived in in that way.
1: Here's a kind of technical awardsy question, and I don't know the answer to it because I don't, I haven't seen the movie, and I don't really know the ratio of music golden globes wise is this comedy
2: slash musical (laughs) (laughs) depends on if they put aids in there (laughs) (laughs) i mean
0: yeah open question of whether or not anyone says the word aids in this movie
2: yeah yeah you know and things like that it's just it's like so strange that's even a question that we're asking of a movie where that's a clear plot point and a clear bit of historical context the fact that we're even asking is 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 no comfort i will say that i mean you know darkest hour i like the screenplay but that was all about jowls for me
0: and,
2: <laughs> and and this movie uh doesn't have the jowls so it has teeth it has the mustache it has yeah it has the mustache it has the flailing um we'll see
0: i also just realized looking at imdb that uh i think one of the band members is played by joseph Mazzello, who is the kid from jurassic park who popped up again in the social network. This is child actor made good.
1: And is in a movie called The Cure, which is about AIDS.
0: Oh, hey. Okay. So he he knows what's When he up. was we'll a kid. If, wow. yeah, we'll see if Bohemian Rhapsody can get there.
1: Yeah, oh, Mike Myers is in the movie. Uh, Tom Eden Hollander Gillen. shows up in
0: the trailer. Love that guy. Yeah. Mike
2: Myers is in the movie. Yeah. You know, was the last time that he was in any sort of queer production in 54? I think it might have been. Remember when he got an Oscar push for that, or people wanted him to have an Oscar push for that? It was like Mike Myers, you know, coming to the dark side of Oscar drama, and then that just didn't didn't happen.
0: Is he still starring in his Gong Show on television? Is that still happening?
2: <laughs> the fact that you're—I mean, I have no idea. IMDb <laughs> really? does not list it as canceled. If you have so. to ask. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't know. No, I don't know. I would love—I mean, I mean I'm—you know—I'm—I'm—I would consider myself to be a fan.
1: Okay, you said the last gay thing was 54. IMDb says that in 2004, he appeared briefly as Austin Powers in a segment called "Boys" in Britney Spears' Colin Greatest Hits. My prerogative. Oh, so. Yeah. Good for him. I don't know what that is, but, you know.
2: <laughs> but it sounds very gay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> sounds pretty gay. Yeah, I think that counts.
0: He actually doesn't need to do anything. He just has a lot of Shrek dollars. Okay, we're going to go back to the present Uh, for the end of the show. uh, We're, as I said, going to be, or Richard's going to be talking to Old Parker, the director of Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. Uh, But before we do that, we just wanted to talk a little bit about the movie, which uh, I I said earlier, I drove through two blinding rainstorms to get to see and don't regret. And uh, Richard, your review basically says that, like, it's been a tough summer for everybody. Do yourself the favor of seeing Mamma Mia.
1: Yeah, it's funny that you you know uh, weathered the elements to and 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 sort of it was worth it in the end because I there were no elements that I was really fighting my th- way through other than like heat but um, I was in a really bad mood when I but when I went was on my way to the screening was like pushing through humid Times Square got to the the theater and it wasn't universal running the screening and it was some other company and it was a total shit show and there was this long line and they didn't know where to seat me and i had then they had to move me from my seat and the theater didn't have air conditioning and oh, it no. started 15 minutes late and i was like oh my god this movie is making me hate it before it's even started <laughs> and it started and i was kind of annoyed and then a little less annoyed and then a little less and basically by the end i was just like a weepy like you know happy mess so it, it's a powerful uh powerful experience
0: Was it for me, like, uh, you know, I had a fine experience, but uh, when the Waterloo number in the uh, Parisian restaurant, which there's a 360 video version of it on YouTube that you can preview um, that started and I just like felt the joy rise up in my heart. And I was like, oh, God, I'm so sold on this.
1: I mean, that's that particular number is so deeply silly. And like (laughs) you watch the actor, I forget his name, who's playing opposite Amanda Seyfried. He's playing young. um,
0: Oh, He's opposite uh, Lily James.
1: Lily James, a, excuse me, yeah, yeah he's playing he's playing young uh, Colin Firth, um, and you're like, wow, this is this this is a brave actor because it's like pretty goofy, um, but you know that's the kind of peak of it's you know oh my god this could be really dumb and then the rest of it I feel like just they just kind of get it right. Old Parker who wrote and directed it like figured out a tone that's different from the first movie. It's a little more melancholy. It's a little bit more. It's a little less crazy and freewheeling. But it but it works, and I feel like the it's on it's like eighty nine on Rotten Tomatoes right now. Not that I really buy into that rubric, but I'm in the mood for a good crowd movie, and this seems like
2: a good
0: like people applauding after yeah, their, like musical right. numbers. Yeah, I think I think if you pick the right theater, you'll definitely get that.
2: I will say though that if there's no air conditioning when I go see it, I'm walking out. I'm not, <laughs> like that is for summer movies. That is literally one of the perks, like sitting for two hours in air conditioning and eating popcorn and being entertained.
0: Especially because the movie takes place on, like, on this Greek aisle where, like, it's always just tempered enough that, like, you could wear jeans and you could, like, have a caftan that's kind of heavy, but you won't be too right. hot. Like, right. the, the clothing, I think, as in the first one, is um, really admirable. Lots of good resort wear. Uh, and then they all have disco costumes at the end, which, once again, like, Dominic Cooper is wearing this, like... Like tank top, glitter, disco outfit. That like I, when I saw him in it in the first one, I was like, he's never going to have a career after this. Like no one can recover from this. Uh, and he did fine, and he looks great in it. So
1: yeah, there's a, somehow the movie gets away with making everyone look like an idiot. You know, <laughs> yeah. like yeah. It, and it doesn't like tarnish them. You just kind of like, oh, I It's so fun that they were game for this. You know, yeah. And they know that it's silly. And like you, you watch, you know, um, Stellan Skarsgård or or who you know, Colin Firth like. Or, or Pierce Brosnan even like do their sort of like middle aged man flailing dance, and you're just like, it's endearing, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah. I think my favorite scene in the movie is when they do a Dancing Queen number, which I was definitely in the first one too, but it's like all these people on a boat, and you've got Stelz Garsgard and Colin Firth like hanging off the, they were, the first they're doing like the Titanic pose, uh, and then like Colin Firth is like dancing, hanging off of the mast. Like it is yeah. really weird, but he's just, he's just game for it. And, and it's, it's a like, whole.
1: It- Yeah, and it's a flotilla of boats. It's it's the little boats of Dunkirk. I mean, it's like a whole (laughs) fleet headed toward this island, and they're all dancing to Dancing Queen with Colin Firth, like you know, leading the charge. It's it's um it's pretty uh it's pretty wild, but um, but you know, I laughed, I cried, Uh, share.
0: yeah is there enough share it was gonna be my next question
1: yeah. um i, I yes I, I actually think there's a, just the, the right amount of share i think a little more share would have been too much share because like the her whole thing and is just that it's a joke that she's there right and so you don't want to make that they make the joke twice and i think if they'd made it a third time it would have not f- f- landed the right way um and you know you came you're talking about going to have like a kind of you know communal movie going experience i mean when granted we were at like a free screening whatever but like when she walked out on state on on you know in the movie people just like went nuts like applauding and hooting and 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 that was really fun and it also does a long goes a long way in making up for the almost lack of the original film Star Meryl Street
0: yeah, well, I guess that's kind of a spoiler, but uh, she's she's part of it to some extent. But it is weird how the movie has played coy about that. Um, it does hmm. feel like slightly misleading the way that like she's in all the ads. Um, but yeah, Cher definitely does. Something. And I forget like how few movies she makes. Like she hasn't been in a movie since Burlesque.
2: And she's such a good actress. Yeah, I know. She's really I, I watched Moonstruck
0: <laughs> yeah. for the first time a couple months ago, and my god, she, like that's so a great good. movie. She's so good in it. And like having so her good. show up, even though she's in her like you know, wearing this crazy wig and these crazy outfits. Like, you see some of that, like, earthy actress quality to her, even in something as crazy as Mamma Mia 2.
1: Now, Katie, um, so one, one thing that people have been joking about this movie um, is that, you know, Cher was also great in Silkwood, which she co-starred with, with Meryl Streep And uh, Cher is, in fact, only three years older than Meryl Streep and yet <laughs> is playing her mother in in, in <laughs> Mamma Mia Here We Go Again, um, which is one of several weird lapses in time logic in in this movie uh, did that bother you? Did it take you out of it at all? Or are you just like, who cares?
0: The only time I thought of it was when, I think, and Amanda Seyfried said something to Cher where it's like, it's 25 too late for you to be a grandma. And I was like, okay, so she's 25 in this. How old was she in the last one? It top- so she wasn't 15 in the last one. So it hasn't been 10 years since the first Mamma Mia movie. And that movie probably took place in 1999 because she's shown graduating college in 1979. Like that kind of stuff. But I don't know. Like it just seemed like I think Sharon Meryl Streep know it's funny that she's playing Meryl Streep's mom and kind of ran with it. It, it does seem like part of the appeal is that like time doesn't exist on this greek island
1: is there even the hint of a cell phone i guess there are like a couple times early in the movie yeah
0: days, yeah she's like, a, and like dominic cooper's in like modern new york when he calls right
1: her. but um oh i i had i had missed the five-year thing okay so that puts that makes it a little more sense because i was trying to do this math and i was like how old is anyone in this <laughs> like <laughs> none of this makes sense
0: i've never looked up to see if like pierce brosnan and meryl streep are like remotely close in age but it just it just it feels like a magical place where you are kind of like beautiful and blonde
1: forever yeah and speaking of beautiful blonde lily james is great in it as the young she's so great Um, it reminded me of her because like i really didn't like her in um baby driver but that wasn't really her fault it wasn't it wasn't
2: a great role for her
1: yeah and it was just not a good fit but like i don't know how you felt about it cam but like i loved her in cinderella i thought she was just this like bright effervescent kind of burst of energy and yeah. and and you, it's almost ludicrous the way that she is that in this movie because she's just she's like on this greek aisle just like just basically a living ray of sunshine which is kind of like a corny thing to say but it's true
0: yeah and she's got a great she's got a great tan just to talk about Darkest Hour again, I really liked her in Darkest Hour. It was like a very Kira Knightley role um, and I thought she was great in it, but this is kind of a leveling up in sunshine-ness. If they do a third Mamma Mia, I hope it's like not young people again, but just like bringing in like other actresses, like Kristen Scott Thomas, bring in Emma Thompson, like let like, because like when, when you finally see like Christine Baranski and Julie Walters get in on a musical number, it's like, oh, thank God, I've been waiting for this the whole time. There's much less of them this time, which is a shame.
1: Katie, you have just wandered into a perfect idea. So old Parker... Wrote the first best exotic marigold hotel, mm, wrote yes. and directed the second one. He wrote and directed this. The movie is about Amanda Seifert's character opening a hotel oh my on God. this island. <laughs> so it's just old people showing up to this island and then, then they start singing songs. Yeah, I'm into it's it. Ba- it's baked right in. I'm into it.
0: Well, Richard, maybe you can ask Old Parker about that uh, in your interview, which you're, uh, we're about to listen to.
1: Well, I'm on the line now with Ole Parker, the writer and director of Mamma Mia! Here We Go Again. Ole, thanks for being here. Total pleasure. So I was saying to my co-host earlier that uh, the circumstances surrounding uh, the screening of Mamma Mia that I went to uh, were not great. There were some technical air conditioning issues and just a very hot, humid day in New York and I was feeling kind of grumpy. And it was impossible to feel grumpy after maybe five minutes of this movie. So thank you for that. I really (laughs) appreciate that.
3: That's a relief. Yeah, we like to challenge ourselves. I'm so sorry about whatever circumstances you went through. But yeah, if we helped you through it, then that's great.
1: No, it was great. I mean, it's such a um, something I wrote about in my review and probably have been writing about in other reviews since, you know, America started on its wayward path uh, about a year and a half ago, is that it's such a nice experience to see a movie like this. It's not only fun has singing and dancing, but it's really in touch with its emotional, sentimental side, but not in a, in a cloying way. How do you kind of calibrate that when you're writing a film and then directing it? Like, you want it to be silly, but not too silly. You want it to be sweet, but not sappy. How conscious of that that balance do you have to be?
3: Well, first, thank you. That's incredibly kind. And actually, yeah, we could take your experiences going into cinema and having the air conditioning as a metaphor for these desperate, dark and heated times that we're going through now. And so, yeah, obviously, you made it even harder for us to bring you joy. But, I mean, that was absolutely... I remember reading an issue with Merrill 10 years ago with the first movie. And she was saying, the world really needs this movie now. The world really needs some joy. And tragically, that's only become far more true. And every, Marilyn and I were actually on the blue carpet the other night at the premiere, uh, almost unable to do <laughs> interviews because we were discussing uh, Trump in Helsinki. And so, um, so, yeah, so if we can uh, lighten people's load uh, at all, then that's amazing and a privilege um, in terms of, sorry, that was a long <laughs> preamble to your question. Uh, in terms of that, um, yeah, it's everything. I think sentimentality by definition is striving for an effect. It's kind of slightly fake and a set. And so you're trying to be genuine when you're writing or I'm trying to be. And so the difficulty obviously comes when you bring ABBA into that mix or any music into that mix because, you know, the lyrics are their own special beast and they're not written in their, original language and there's something pure and innocent about that but also something slightly google translate occasionally Uh, and so it's just a balance that you're trying to walk all the time between what's what's funny and what's silly and what's uh, when that's a pleasure and when that becomes irritating and similarly what's moving and what's genuinely real and touching and then when are you kind of pushing it too far or trying to get too far or trying to fake in effect that will eventually alienate people if you don't make it so it's it's a challenge all the time a challenge writing it then a challenge making it
1: i think something i've loved about your work now f- for a while um particularly in the best exotic marigold hotel films which you wrote both of those is is exactly that kind of good blend of m- melancholy and 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 sort of joy and i'm curious like you know where does you're maybe an unlikely person to be writing a movie about you know uh people of a certain age in in India or or women of a certain age in in you know dancing around a greek island in the terms of the stereotypical ways we think about demographics and all that where where does your interest in this kind of tone or mood come from i mean is that what you seek out as a consumer of film or books or whatever or are are you just good at it at work <laughs>
3: <laughs> again thank you that's a ridiculously flattering question I know that I got the Marigold gig because I was having lunch with the producer of the film um, a few weeks. Uh, just We're friends, and we were just having lunch, and I was, we were just talking about the fact that I think I'd just turned 40, and I, we, I was sort of bemoaning the fact that neither I or my friends seemed to have gained any of the wisdom that 20 years before we would have expected to have gained by the time we were 40. And, then, and just wondering aloud if when I hit 70 I would be any wiser at all or any smarter. And then he called up a couple of months later and said, uh, remember that? Com- it was just, you know, it was just, you know, friends chatting. And then he called up a bit later, when you remember that conversation, I think it might have something. And it was the original book that became uh Girl Hotel. It was Deborah Mogger's book. And so, um, so, I don't know. It just, it seems, I mean, I actually viewed Marigold Hotel as kind of a teen comedy, basically, with just, with older people. And I think it's not for me to try and guess at the reason for its success, but I think something to do with it was that they weren't old people aging disgracefully, Or aging, you know, tragically, they were just aging. Do you know what I mean? And so I tried, in a way, not to think about their ages too much and not to kind of... It's about not wanting to be marginalized or defined by your age. They were just people, if that makes any sense, and doesn't sound glib. So, and with this, I I don't know. I mean, it is, obviously, it was very funny to me. It was very funny to get the old cast back and to make jokes about how they're all looking, although they're all still preposterously attractive, as you can tell on screen. Um, It just seems to be you know, something I was drawn to. I mean, this came about because uh, Richard Curtis, the great screenwriter and director, uh, sent me an email saying, uh, and we're friends, he'd seen something that I did and we'd become, you know, friends and we sort of talked idly and vaguely about collaborating. Or he talked about it and I'd be like, yes, please, that would be great. And then he'd talk about something else. And uh, and he wrote me an email saying, uh, random question, do you like ABBA? And I wrote back going, who doesn't or something. And I think I thought he might invite me to dinner with Benny and Bjorn because, you know, he knows everybody and that's how he rolls. And then, um, then he wrote again, going, how do you feel about writing a sequel? So it's just sort of pure luck is, is how I got to be sitting talking to you now, Richard.
1: So when you were tasked with writing a musical like this, um, you know, obviously the songs are written, so it's not like you're collaborating with composer, or lyricist, but, but you do have to figure out, all right, what songs do we want to use? Where do they go? How do we kind of contextualize them into the, into the story of the film? Could you talk a little bit about that process? Like, was it just you in a room deciding when things should be? Was it more collaborative in terms of working with ABBA or, you know, producers? Uh, I'm just curious how that all works.
3: Yeah, I was enormously surprised, but it was actually, I, I went to Stockholm when I got the gig. I met Judy Cramer. Richard introduced me to Judy Kramer, the producer who produced the original stage musical and produced the original film with Gary Getzman from Playtime. And I knew Gary already because my wife's an actress and had worked with him. So that was he produced Jonathan Demi's films, and my wife was in a couple of those. So that you know that was all nice and good. And so I got offered the gig writing it, and I went to Stockholm uh, to meet Benny and Bjorn. And I think I thought they were going to give me a list of ten or fifteen songs that they'd most liked and wanted me to kind of find you know crowbar some plot around those songs. And it was the complete opposite. They were like, "Look, you obviously know our back catalogue, which I did. I grew up." You know, on the school run, my mum used to play ABBA all the time. So it wasn't like they were necessarily my band of choice as a you know teenager. But I mean, certainly I was steeped as we all are. My subconscious uh, had all the tunes and most of the lyrics. And so um, they would just like knock yourselves out and do what you want. I mean, really feel very free. And our only stipulation is that the song should be part of the story as, in as much as possible rather than just bring it to a screeching halt for a performance. And so then I went away and started trying to. You Know just put together what I wanted. Obviously, I thought we should use a couple from the film from the first film because you know you can't do a thing without Dancing Queen and it's the greatest song ever. And obviously, Mamma Mia, you know, this is the eponymous song, so that should be there somewhere. But otherwise, I wasn't really nervous about using lesser known songs because if you go and see any musical any night or The Greatest Showman or La La Land or whatever, uh, you don't worry that you haven't heard the tunes before, do you know what I mean? So it wasn't a kind of a sense of using Abba's B-sides. It was just songs that I really liked. And so I tried my best. There's a couple of times where it's obviously just a massive crowbar. I mean, uh, and you try and make that into a joke. Andy Garcia's character is invented so that Cher can sing a song to him. Uh, And so that was all working backwards from that moment where she identifies him by name and starts to sing. Uh, Whereas other times you're writing it, I remember I was writing, I'd written up to the point where Lily James had had a heart broken by Jeremy Irvin who plays the young Pierce Brosnan and I was thinking okay what now and then you look at the lyric. you know I had the songs up on the wall and there's you know the first line of Mama Mia is I've been cheated by you and so it's like oh cool we can do that then so sometimes you're writing towards the song sometimes the song dictates um, sometimes you find the song as you get there you know but I was totally free uh, which was lovely
1: what you said about you know using the somewhat lesser known abba songs to the casual you know abba fan sure. is is abso- absolutely true because you know some of the songs i wasn't very familiar with and i was like oh this just blends in seamlessly with the story and and so you can kind of experience it a bit more organically than you know money 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 or whatever that you know songs we've heard a billion times yeah no,
3: i think yeah i totally agree i think it's actually a positive because you're not like okay here's this one i'll just stop and listen to it And sing along. And actually, the lesson in one, the other thing I could do, which hadn't happened in the first movie, is I asked Bjorn right at the beginning, you know, notionally how he'd feel about rewriting some lyrics. And obviously, if it's Dancing Queen, you're not going to do that because people want to sing along, and they've been singing along for uh, all their lives. And so there's no point in messing with the lyrics. You just have to try and make those work dramatically. But for songs like I've Been Waiting For You, which was a love song, and Bjorn rewrote it to be a song, a love song from a mother to her child, which is sung quite stunningly by Amanda Seyfried. Uh, and then My Love, My Life at the End, uh, which Meryl and Amanda sing, was again a song about, you know, parting with a lover, and it became a song about a, originally about a christening and then a different kind of parting. And that was very much, you know, that, that was made possible by the fact that the songs were less well-known. So that was a gift to me.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm glad you mentioned that. That final duet. I'm. I'm going to issue a spoiler alert for listeners who don't want to know a particular plot detail about the movie. But um, so yeah, go away now. That duet between Meryl and Amanda is really strikingly beautiful, and you know, and it's such a lovely version of that song. And you know, with the also the addition of the end credits, kind of big fun thing, gives Meryl a strong presence in the film you know, but despite the fact that she was not clearly available for a bulk of the shooting or whatever, whatever the situation was. So I'm curious, like, when that reality became clear, did that Dovetail specifically with like okay, well we got to get someone else. What about share? Like, how did those kind of two things, like the Meryl Streep of it all and the share of it all, kind of work uh, in relationship to each other in terms of thinking about
3: casting? The Meryl Streep of it all is part of the is part of why it's been ten years uh, between the two movies. I mean, it's not just the Meryl of it all; it's the everybody of it all. I mean, yeah. obviously, you know, the first movie was a you know massive commercial success and was hugely loved, and that's obviously why we're having this conversation now. And the studio were very keen to make another one straight away. And I think, you know, all the cast were very keen too as well. They'd had a remarkable time to which I can attest having, you know, seen the bond between them all that still exists now and which I was lucky enough to take advantage of for the second movie. And so the, everyone was keen and Benny and Bjorn were keen. They were just also keen. They all have enough integrity and enough money mm-hmm. not to not to want to not to need to do it. Do you know what I mean? And not to want to sully the memory of the first one, which they're very they're very proud of the impact that it had and of the how much it means to people. And so uh so it was just about waiting until the right, till they found the right story, really, and that everyone was, you know, keen but sceptical, uh, and that was the point where I came in. It was just trying to find, you know, they just hadn't found one, and they wanted a story that was, you know, emotional and impactful and meaningful, and so I, you know, this was my suggestion, and Meryl was absolutely part of that decision, as was everybody else. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, because I'm cheap, and they were desperate, they were like, okay, why don't you have a go writing it? And, see if that works, and then, uh, you know, and then it seemed to work for everybody, and there was, you have that nervous moment where you send it, so we had a rule that if any of the main eight said no, then it just wouldn't happen, because they're all fabulous, and they're all so tight, and it would just seem wrong to recast any one of those, but then all eight, you know, Meryl included, were, you know, delighted and signed up, so it just, it just seemed to work, so it really was, it was a sort of collective thing of just what's the best story to tell. You know, not every song needs an encore. Not every film needs a sequel. And if you can't find a reason for one to exist except for money, then you shouldn't be doing it. In terms of share, I mean, that was connected to it, I guess. It wasn't a sense that we need to fill that gap specifically, but I just, you know, there's an American sports saying, if you're not playing offense, you're playing defense. Like, you've got to try and come back stronger. You don't come back level. And obviously, if you don't have Meryl so much, then you're not level. And so I always wanted something you know, explosive to happen at the end of the movie. I also really like the song Fernando. It's my mum's favourite album. I really wanted that in there. And it needed someone with pipes that could really kill it. And so, um, so yeah, so I wrote the part nakedly for her. I practically called the character Cher in the script. And, um... And when I handed it I mean, I just got the gig as director, as a writer, I mean, not as director. So when I handed it in, assuming that it would be, you know, somebody far more elevated than me, you know, struggling to shoot a dance sequence on 14 boats, uh, I was like, that share, whoever does this, by the way, that shares part. And uh, I just refused to contemplate anybody else. And she made us wait, obviously, because she's share and she's on share time, as she should be. And, uh, and the studio were well, like, "You really need to start thinking about." Uh, and I was like, "No, no, no! She'll say yes because she has to." And um, and then she did, and it's glorious.
1: Yeah, it's it's so much fun, and and like I said earlier, you know, it 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 approaches that line of like too silly, but it, but you rein it in. It just you know because she's giving a real performance. It's not just like you know a campy cameo. It was fun to see her again. What what was it like? Thank you. Thank you, you know when she shows up on on set like i mean what was the energy there like because she's such a, an icon in in so many different ways
3: well it mirrors what happens in the film i mean she's next level it was a completely extraordinary thing and i mean i was tremendously excited when she said yes like i said i wrote it for her and, and telling the cast it was going to be her everyone was you know giddy it was just it was all great and exciting and then obviously you go through the process of trying to set it all up and make it all work for her and, to be honest, we weren't sure she was going to get on the plane, and it was an even happier moment when the plane actually landed in in London, uh, because you always think it might divert. She might just go, you know what, I'm not going to do it, and head off to Hawaii instead. And, so, uh, and then she arrives on set the day before, and there's like a phalanx of managers and stuff around her, and she's chair, and everyone gets hushed and quiet. And uh, and then you meet her, and she's really warm, really funny. Just a brilliant person, like, genuinely. I mean, I would happily tell you if not, because if anyone has the right to be a diva, then it's her, and that would have been fine and funny. Actually, she's just great. But that doesn't, she can't dispel, and I don't think wants to, uh, the effect that she has on other people, which is, um, I mean, the day she sang Fernando, her first day, everyone came in that wasn't working that day, all the cast, and they all brought their husbands and wives and children and dogs and there was a full set and when she finished the song there was this storm of applause oh sensational and on the last day her last day they were all queuing for photos and so there was uh, you know there's James Bond and there's Mr. Darcy and there's Dame Julie Walters just forming a line queuing for photos with Cher uh, who obviously you know takes a photo and is incredibly kind and lovely but uh, she's just on a different level than the rest of us
1: that's great I mean that's such a, a what a neat experience it was extraordinary yeah Another, uh, f- you know, sort of force of nature in the movie, though a lesser known one for now, I, I see big things for her, uh, is Jessica Keenan Wynn, who plays the younger version of Christine Baranski, who's also great, uh, of Christine Baranski's character, Tanya. And it is uncanny how much they look alike, sound alike, kind of have the same energy. How did you find her, and what was that? I mean, for I guess for all the younger people, because you know, for the listeners who don't know, maybe half-ish of the movie is for flashback for, for to Donna, played by Lily James, when she's younger and meeting these three guys when they're younger. So, how did that casting process work, specifically with with Jessica? But just in general, was was it hard to find kind of the right match for each actor?
3: Well, first off, that's brilliant. I'm so glad that you picked her out because I think she's absolutely spectacular. I think it's a wonderful performance, so she'll be thrilled. She's also a lovely person, so she'll be thrilled when I tell her what you just said. Yeah, she was actually the hardest to find because Christine is very particular. I mean, obviously, Lily playing Meryl was a big search, and that took a long time, and we saw some brilliant people, and Lily was away. She was doing publicity for Baby Driver, which kept doing better than people thought, so they kept extending her publicity tour and again, we had to kind of cast it and it a lot of rehearsal, so time was running out and I was going, we just have to wait, we just have to wait, she's sensational, she's going to come back and rock it, I promise. And then finally she came in and, you know, I also just wanted to check, she was as nice as everybody said because it was incredibly important to me that we all try and have a lovely time, so I thought if I cast people that I really liked, uh then... You know, life would go better and be easier, and hopefully some of that would be reflected on screen, but also just we'd all have a ball making it. And so Lily pretty much had it on a handshake because I knew she was a rock star, and then she came in and was just lovely. Uh, but Jess was a, a search. I mean, we just couldn't find anyone. Christine, you know, has a particular physical look and particular vocal mannerisms, and people were coming in and doing impressions of her, which was exactly not what I wanted. I asked all the cast to kind of study their legacy. We call them the legacy cast, not the older cast. So we asked the younger cast to study their legacy counterparts and see what they could take from it, but then chuck it away, like it shouldn't dominate their performance. the performance should feel real, not that you're watching an impression, which made it very difficult because Christine is so striking and so remarkable in so many beautiful ways. And then really late, a tape came from New York with Jess on, and I watched it with tremendous relief, like, oh, there she is. And I flew to New York that night, I think, and met her the next day and to, again just to check that she was a good person and again she had it on a handshake she's great um but she'll be so thrilled that's brilliant
1: yeah it's just it's just kind of wild i was like is that like are they doing one of those weird like digital effects where they just kind of made you know an actor look a little younger for like a scene or two it's it's really uncanny so uh it, it's it's fun <laughs>
3: That's brilliant. No, we're not, as the answer said.
1: That's brilliant. You've <laughs> right. got that. um, so you have this complicated script written, uh, this complicated casting process complete. Um, you're on set. You, you're not a stranger to directing films, but this is a different kind of project for you. You know, like you mentioned, you have a flotilla of boats, you know, with a musical number on them uh, to, to shoot, If, for example. What for you was like the most fun thing about it? i mean beyond working with the cast and all that or or what was the most challenging what, what kind of sticks out to you about the actual sort of technical production process
3: i think just the just the enormity i mean i directed two very small very low budget movies one of which was entirely serious and that uh, nobody in the world saw and so um genuinely i wrote this thinking and as i was writing it, i was thinking god this feels like fun and I kind of wish, you know, that it would, you know, I hope whoever it is wants to, you know, work with me, and that I get to hang out with them and work on set with them because this feels like a fun thing to do, and I kind of vaguely have ideas. But I was still genuinely shocked. I think two or three months in, I'm guessing Rob Marshall had already said no, and Jason Moore and all those other brilliant guys. Because um, I said, look, surely we'd need a director at this point, and and Judy, God bless her, went, um, we thought you might like to, and so and that was a great shock. Uh, yeah, no, just trying to figure out the logistics. I mean, in different ways, each song has its own requirements. And one of us was a kind of, which Amanda Soford and Dominic Cooper sing, was its own kind of slightly mathematical equation. How can we have two people in different rooms in different continents and seem as though they're singing the same song and sing to each other? And so that becomes a challenge. Dancing Queen is a giant logistical challenge. Waterloo is was a four-day mad shoot destroying a French restaurant but that's a kind of tonal challenge in a sense like what's funny and what's just stupid uh, do you know what I mean what's just silly exactly what you were talking about before Richard and so so you yeah, know different songs different different issues and also just overcoming my own sense of complete inadequacy trying to persuade myself to get out of bed when I'm going to go and direct a scene with Meryl Street. Uh, And Cher and Andy Garcia and, you know, James Bond, uh, Pierce Brosnan, Colin Firth, you know, James Judy Waters, all of those things. It's just like, but then actually, you know, one of the reasons they're at the top of their game is that they're all brilliant. And another is that they're incredibly kind and they know what they're doing. And so if you don't, they'll just help you out.
1: So, I mean, speaking of something like the Waterloo segment or, you know, or the Mamma Mia part, like, or, or rather Dancing Queen part, you know, these are long technical shoots They require a lot of detail and precision. And yet the end product has to seem buoyant, kind of organic, you know, spontaneous. How do you maintain that kind of mood when everyone's sort of tired? And and I don't know, I'm just always kind of impressed when, when a scene like that feels as lively as if it was on stage, you know, and being done for, you know, without different takes and, all, and cuts and all that. Sure. Um, is there a strategy to that or is it just like a, a kind of alchemy of, of cast and director and situation
3: it's very little to do with the director I think but it's an alchemy of lots of other things part of it is to do with the music which is so buoyant and so glorious that it's very hard every time you press play not to feel uplifted it's very hard not to dance the dancing queen however tired you are all you have all we have to do is press play even on like day six and Pierce Brosnan would be just skipping off down the road you can't stop that man so that is a huge thing. We had a remarkable uh, cinematographer, which is a really big deal. Bob Yeoman, who shoots, he shoots like big budget comedies like Spy and Ghostbusters, but he also shoots Wes Anderson films. Like he's a real genuine artist. And so the day he signed up, that was a huge day for me uh, and for the movie. And we had a lovely choreographer, Anthony Van Last, who's really one good and two gives the cast steps that they can know and get or doesn't give them in the case of Peters Brosnan just lets them roam free uh and and also the dancers are remarkable if you've ever seen or worked with uh, professional dancers it's not like ballet it, you, these are twirlies they're called like musical theater dancers they never flag they never stop and they never market. they're always all in always What well, every rehearsal they give everything and they're endlessly joyous we were all stunned and surprised by that and uh and grateful because you just feed off their energy and i guess my job you know in as much as i have one apart from getting out of the way is just to try and make everybody feel you know loose and free and we had some time so if they are tired then you just stop and take a break and hang out or shoot something different and come back when people have more energy you know? and then it's well edited too so it's an alchemy of all kinds of things very few of which have anything to do with me
1: do you, um, you know, once you wrapped, you now you're doing press for it and everything. Uh, in this process of making the film, do you have like a new ABBA favorite song, or has your has your kind of hierarchy remained the same? Are you rethinking the group in 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 some kind of way?
3: Um, I just, I my mum came on set uh, when we were doing Fernando. what you take coming down the staircase, and my mum meeting Benny. It doesn't matter how many grandchildren I give her, she met Benny Anderson, and that'll please her uh, for far <laughs> longer, far more. So um, probably that, but maybe, I mean, the first moment when the helicopter's uh, flying towards the flotilla of boats and the first, you know, the piano roll of Dancing Queen plays and Colin and Stellan doing the Titanic pose at the front of the boat. You know, I mean, that's one of the great memories of my life. So, uh, but there are so many. I mean, it was uh, genuinely, I know everyone always says it's an amazing time. We all love each other. And that's There's something faintly nauseating about that. And there's nothing as off pushing as people having more fun on screen than you're having watching them. But in this case, uh, we really did have a extraordinary time, and, um, and you know, we just hope that we you know, did enough work to make you enjoy that too.
1: No, I think it absolutely reads uh, on screen. I, I, as I said, I, I had a had a great time. Um, now, is there a world where there's a third? Do you think?
3: <laughs> I, I don't. I mean, I don't know. Apparently, I mean, I don't read them. With all respect, I don't. You know, to, to you, I, I don't read reviews, especially not of things that I've done. It, it, it doesn't really help me. But apparently, there. They're really good, which is really nice. I think most of them are kind of bemused surrender. Like, oh, I guess, you know, how can you resist? But that's fine. I don't know. I guess we'll see how this one goes. I know they all had an amazing time doing it. and They all love each other. And now there are six new younger actors who all, have all joined the family and who all love each other. and Lovely legacy ones, too. And It was a ridiculously bonding time. So I'm sure they'd all be thrilled. As for me... I, you know who? I mean, we'll just see how this weekend goes, I guess, and how it carries on. But I would be, uh, you know, surprised. In my case, I think I've sort of given it all I can. But you know, who knows?
1: Well, my idea was to kind of combine two different things. One, you know, Sophie opens this hotel. You've written two other films about hotels, so you could get whole new cast members coming to Greece <laughs> to do a musical. It's
3: becoming. It's clearly
0: becoming a theme in
3: my work. It's pure coincidence, <laughs> and obviously the next one will be, I don't know what it'll be, if I do anything else. A slasher movie it or something. Again, <laughs> it, w- it won't have hotel anywhere near it. But I mean, that's all, yeah, um, If listen, if you've got an idea for it, I'll take it. Well, Ol,
1: thank you so much for talking to us. You know, I hope that people, many people see and enjoy the film, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that um, you had as much fun making it as I did watching it. We look forward to what you do next.
3: Thanks so much, Richard. I really appreciate it. Thanks. It nice
1: talking to you. you too. Have a great day.
0: That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you, as always, for listening. Thanks, Cam, for joining us again. This was fun. You can find all of us at VanityFair.com. There is a lot of Mamma Mia content to come, so please keep an eye out for all of that. Um, you can find us all on Twitter at little gold Men, and on our own, I'm at Katie Rich. Richard? Rylas, And Cam?
2: Melville Maddock.
0: This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth.
1: And this week's award for the best explanation of why uh, our erstwhile co-host Mike Hogan has been missing for a few weeks. It goes to Katie Rich.
0: He actually doesn't need to do anything. He just has a lot of Shrek dollars.